Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 353. Thanks to the Respect Sextet. They provided the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel. He designed the show's logo, and he's online at twitter.com slash Rabel V-R-A-B-E-L. Thanks also to All About Jazz for carrying this show on their website. You can find it at allaboutjazz.com, and you'll also find a widget there, which you can install on your website, and it will display the latest episode of the Jazz Session. To do that, just go to allaboutjazz.com and search for Jazz Session Widget in the search box. And then when you install it, let me know, because I will mention you in my newsletter, which goes out each week. You can get that newsletter by going to thejazzsession.com and clicking on Mailing List. And while you're at the website, please do become a member. That's what keeps this show going. Had a bunch of members join in the last week or so, which is very exciting. I'd like to thank all those people, and I will thank them uh, by name on a future broadcast. But for now, suffice it to say that the show needs even more folks to step up and join. Uh, if, if even something like 10% of the people who download this show each week were members, uh, I, the show would be in much more solid financial position <laughs> than it tends to be. Uh, and, of course, every time I say the show, you just assume that I'm actually saying I. Okay? Cool. My guest today is a singer with just an amazing story, a guy who released his first record when he was in his 70s after living, you know, the kind of life that they make docudramas about. Uh, he's a guy named Ed Reed, and we're going to hear some music from his CD, Born to be Blue. Hey, you old man sitting by the lonesome road Ain't it time you're quitting life's old tiresome load You're so sad and lonely, got no family just an old man from some old country You ain't side no chillin' Ain't none by your side You left all your women Now you ain't satisfied Don't just sit there clinging to a memory of a love left in some old country. My guest is the vocalist Ed Reed. His uh, third record and the most recent is called Born to be Blue, and it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking me. This, uh, I really want to get a chance for you to tell people the, the story of your life, and on this record, knowing that story, it's very difficult to listen to almost any of these songs without thinking that these lyrics are almost, you know, <laughs> autobiographical. I mean, it's almost impossible to escape. You chose them, and many of the lyrics have this, you know, they tell stories of a life lived. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe we can come back in a, in a little bit to the selection of the repertoire. But uh, can we start out just telling folks kind of when and where you grew up? Well, I was born in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, 
And my folks, my dad came to California, Southern California, L.A., in um, 1937. Well, he came in 36. My mother and I came in 37. And um, I grew up in Watts. And, when you know, it was a middle working class Anglo community. And um, um, that's that's where everything, you know, went to school there all of that was know. music a part of your life from an early age yeah my mother was a singer uh and had ambition to be an operatic singer um of course that didn't work out because uh she had an opportunity to go to la scala really did 1927 uh some people she worked for wanted to send her and that freaked my grandmother out my my grandmother was born born into slavery and she could not phantom my mother going to italy you know and so um she says so like you need to get that nonsense out of your head and marry that man that's a good man he'll take good care of you you know because my, my dad was hanging around and and uh, my dad was really a good guy and uh she married him, and I don't think she ever. I think she regretted it till the day she died. Mm. You know that she didn't do what um, she what her heart told her to do. Sure, she saw. Her, she was twenty seven years old. And I think she saw herself as an obedient child. You know because the language of uh, of. Uh, the slave master must have been under my grandmother's tongue. Uh, you know, there's a book right now, uh, the the um, the warmth of other suns. Man, it's all about that stuff. It's about an America that um, everybody's been hurt by what they started there. Um, well, I guess maybe that's the way America came to be: killing people and doing ugly stuff. Yeah, I I, every every piece of land we uh, we live on here in the country we stole from somebody else. That's so, right. Uh, yeah, That's right. I, I, you know when when parents come out of fairly restrictive or obedient households, sometimes they carry on the tradition in their own house, and sometimes they go the other way and become parents who let their kids experiment yeah. and, and try their hand. Yeah. Which way did your mother go? Oh, and my mother was pretty strict, um, and. Um, you're going to Stanford and become an attorney so you'll be somebody, and that's the end of it. <laughs> so I showed her I went to the penitentiary four times. <laughs> yeah, I don't think jailhouse attorney was exactly what she had in mind. No, no, no. That, <laughs> no, no that was, and not only that, I went to work in the library and became the legal librarian. <laughs> boy, oh, boy. Can you talk about, I think for a lot of people who know the kind of East Coast-based story of jazz, the the nature of Central Avenue is a little bit lost yeah. on them. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about what it was like uh, when you started going there. Well, you know, um, it was always, um, the players were always coming through. The Andy Kirk Band, Jimmy Lunsford, um, Lionel Hampton, um, after Benny Goodman. Um 
Oh, God. Uh, Ellington, Ellington in particular, you know. Um, there was a club in Watts called the Plantation. Huge barn-like place. Not a barn, but it was a, it was a beautiful building, but it was old, you know. And, um, the bands, all the bands came there, you know. And, uh, one night I fell off the roof because I was on the roof looking through, looking through a, vent a ventilator, <laughs> you know, on the, up, up there on top. And, uh, I, well, I didn't fall all the way to the ground, but I, I was really hurt. Oh, no. <laughs> but that's what we did, you know. We loved those bands. And, uh, uh, well, there was Mingus' uh, sister living across the street because she married my mother's pastor's son, Alex. And uh, they, they, uh, Charles was over there all the time. You know, everywhere he went, he had that bass under his arm. So I remember him from, uh, I guess he was in high school, junior high school. And he was so mad all the time that he was in continuation school, you know, because <laughs> he was not to putting up with no nonsense. Charles always uh, had his own, he was listening to his own drummer. And he used to go across the street. Oh and yeah, spend time with him and yeah, I I'd I'd go over there and I'd stand peeking through the screen door, you know, <laughs> trying to see inside, and uh, he tell me, "What are you doing, man? Come on in," <laughs> 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 and uh, he would be playing one tune. I remember, I've got to be a rug cutter. Uh, I don't remember, I don't remember the rest of it. I, I need to, I need to look that tune up, but I, I really remember that tune. And he was playing. And he told me, he, he taught me how to hear the melody in the, in the chords. Mm. Some folks are meant to live in clover But they are such a chosen few And clover being green Is something I've never seen Cause I was born to be blue above me They say there's moonbeams I should view But moonbeams be And you were a, a young very young man at this point were you thinking already about possibly trying your own hand at music Just after that I started leading a band in front of the radio <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all led that band. <laughs> I, I, th I think Sinatra, I think Sinatra got me leading that band. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure Sinatra got me leading that band because he, you know, in that Tommy Dorsey band, he was something else, and uh, um, he was, he, you know, all that screaming and stuff <laughs> that the young girls were doing did not obscure. Uh, 
what a great singer he was, you know. And my mother and I, we were always listening to Bing Crosby. Um, and what was that other guy before Bing? Uh, I can't think of his name, but uh, we were listening all the time, you know. We, we listened to the Sons of the Pioneers. Mm -hmm. We listened to, uh, we listened to everything, everything. Uh, on Sundays, it was classical music. And uh, music was not so pervasive as it is today. You know, you couldn't, you 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 couldn't always uh, just turn on radio and there was a bunch of stuff. You know, you 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 had to be selective. And Mom did not want the blues. No blues. Mm -mm. Why not? The lyric uh, is often really pretty blaming. Uh, um, it can be pretty nasty blaming too. You know. And she didn't want me listening to that stuff, you know. Um, I'm in love with Joe Turner right now, uh, uh, again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he's talking about Lucille left him with wearing a boot and a shoe. <laughs> 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 so, so what was that? What was going on then? And then there's another one, uh, um, the blue... Um, Lonesome Graveyard, not Lonesome Graveyard, but, uh, yeah, Lonesome Graveyard, and then the other one about uh, uh, saying last goodbye blues, where mm -hmm. he was in his bed sleeping and a tear rolled down his eye, and <laughs> he said, I dreamed that my, I, my, I, I, I heard my baby saying her last goodbye, and then when he woke up, he asked her if uh, she could stand to see him cry. And she said, yes, doggone you. I could stand to see you die. Oh, wow. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what was that? Yeah. What was, <laughs> I'd love to know more about Joe Turner's life, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What was the motivation behind writing that stuff? Where does yeah. this thinking come from? Did did that did your mother's disapproval of the blues did that make it more attractive to you did it make it something that you sought out or did you did you obey her and not listen to it much um i didn't listen i listened but i didn't listen mm -hmm. i didn't want to sing them i i knew you know i know a lot of that stuff but i didn't want to sing it because i don't like the, i don't like that that train of thought I don't believe that um, my life is is a mess because somebody of somebody else. You know, my life is a mess because of my choices. Sure. <laughs> if if my life, when my life was a mess, it was a, it was clearly I kept choosing because I believed uh, in a dream that was illusion. You know. How old were you when you started? I guess kind of hanging around with a crowd that was. Well, I drank. I took my first drink when I was 12 years old. And I said, they said, we're going over Sam's house and get drunk. I said, that's stupid. We, 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 we ain't got no business getting drunk. And I don't even like the taste of that stuff. I tasted that stuff before. I hate that stuff. They said, well, if you ain't going to get drunk, split. Okay, man, I'll get drunk. I drank until I was unconscious. They had to call the paramedics. My mother and father were pissed. 
you know, why did I do that? Well, I guess I was a little socially awkward because I had been an only child mm. and uh, uh, and lonely as a consequence, you know. And my mother didn't want me hanging around with, with people, uh, with just anybody. She had aspirations. You're going to you're going to UCLA or going to Stanford, you know. And so um, more was expected of me. A lot was expected of me. I was going to make her dreams come true, you know. Um, but um, in this book I'm reading, the the warmth of other suns, it's talking about you know. There's this group of people who came from Alabama and settled in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. That's my mother and her sisters, you know. And they started a laundry. And uh, that laundry was filled with, uh, you know, there must have been eight or ten women working. There was an ironing room upstairs. And and all these women are in there ironing, ironing clothes and talking. And I'm the only kid, and they treat me like I'm God, you know. So <laughs> it was amazing. I got anything I wanted. And when we came to California, I had to answer to my mother, and there was nobody to intercede between us. And um, we fought. We struggled. Uh, from age seven uh, until she died. And, uh, uh, when I got into recovery, uh, I was finally able to let go of, of all of that. But, you know, I'm, I'm a lecturer, and so I'm always talking about that stuff. Sure. You know, how, how did I become myself, this self that's uh, at the end of my of my addiction practice i was getting drunk shoot heroin stop breathing fall down you know and i'd come to and somebody somebody i didn't come to but somebody brought me back because i was dying you know and did over and over and over again and i you know th thinking about charlie parker and uh uh all, all the guys, but in particular Bird, he epitomized all of that, you know. And there's an army of people, black musicians who died like that. What the hell was that about? Why was it? Um, well, I guess it in part it was about uh, this America that could not acknowledge um, the former slave as a human being. You know, so uh, we have to move past that. And 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 I'm reading this book about uh, the warmth of other suns, and I started having compassion for everybody. I thought I was going to be pissed, you know. <laughs> but sure. I I felt anger at first, and then I and then I saw what they were doing, and I look at what's what the outgrowth of that has become today, and I said, Oh wow. Everybody got wounded by that by that stuff that was that was going on down there. You know? It doesn't seem like it's possible for it to turn out any other way. I, That's right. I don't know how you can you can't build something on that foundation and not have damage at the top too. Yeah, somebody said, "What you live, you learn. What you learn, you practice. What you practice, you become." 
mm. what you become has consequences. So, you know, the 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 pain of all of that. Oh yeah, I had a four point at one point, and um, I wanted to study elocution, and they said, "Why? No, you go to shoe shop. That's where you belong." This was in high school. Yeah, I said, "I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I went to the army." No. Inside a silent tear I have a silent dream That sometimes sails across The patterns of my mind For silence followed me And dreams just disappear And then I find myself Inside a silent tear And was the army where you got introduced to harder drugs? To heroin, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, on 7th Street in Oakland. Uh, and there, all the band, Billy Eckstein's band was there, you know, um, um, Ernestine Anderson and I mm. used to grin at each other. I sure was in love with her. I was in love with, uh, with Carol Sloan too. Mm. Uh, I haven't seen her, but I, uh, I, I performed with Ernestine not long ago. <laughs> she, she's a trip. But, you know, um, Always singing, never have shut up. But um, when I ran into Peck Allman at Jazz Camp West, he said, you got to record. And I thought, oh, <laughs> it was like I'd never, never heard that idea before, you know. <laughs> but um, what came of it was these three CDs in front of us here, well, two of them, and um, Peck really, uh, Peck and Bud Spangler really, uh, uh, made these two. I had a lot. Bud and I did this one. And I had, you know, I was, I had artistic control and I, I chose the tunes on these, but Peck was more, um, directing and, and I like all three of them. I like stuff from, from each of them. Um, I read in an interview where Diane said that she, uh, Diane is your wife, said that uh, she was with you for years before she even knew you sang. Yeah. Which I find hard, hard to believe. I mean, even even people who don't sing professionally, if you have a good instrument, it seems like she would have just been hearing you singing around the house and si- it seems like music would have been part of your life. Maybe that wasn't the case. Well, I, I think... Um... When we met, I was listening to nothing but Miles Davis. 
I don't think I was, you know, because Miles was saying, playing ballads in 68. We met in 1968 at UCLA, and um, that's all I was listening to. So I wasn't singing much, mm-hmm. I was, but I was I was really taking in what those great bands that he had uh, at that time were doing. And um, I had just gotten out of prison. For the final time? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, where I had been in a big band with Art Pepper and Frank Morgan and, and you know, Dexter came through a couple times, you know. Um we should mention that because these guys were also in prison. They weren't just there no, <laughs> in a no, big band. They no, were they no. were also in prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know one of the main one another one of the practices. Michelle Alexander talks about uh, the new Jim Crow being the prison system. Mm. You know, black, lock up black folks and uh, uh, keep their vote, keep them away from the vote, and uh, all that stuff. You know, it's just dumb stuff that. Our culture keeps doing. Um, but, uh, I don't know why I wasn't singing. Why she, oh, I was, I was busy. I was, I was developing programs. Um, mm. when, I, when we met at UCLA, I was an intern in a community de- development program and I, I was, you know, we, they were training me to help community programs, uh, get, themselves together to make uh, you know war on poverty money and uh, how to do that and uh, I was really you know I was really interested in that because I was so pissed at the prison system how dumb it was and the court system and you know all of that all of that um, all that deliberation to punish without asking what do we want from the punishment all this money they're spending to punish people, what do you want from the punishment? Now it's pretty clear. Michelle Alexander's book's talking about, you know, they wanted to punish people. They didn't want to punish people. They wanted to take the vote from folks. They wanted to uh, keep them out of the population and be paid for it. You know, it's it's so crass and 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 uh, cheap and and just uh, and blatant. Yeah, blatant. <laughs> yeah, blatant. It's, it's not even well disguised. Really. No, no. You know, um, they told me, and they were ignorant. They said one 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 of these guys said, uh, "What was he said? I was shooting marijuana." <laughs> That's a good a trick, dummy. You know. <laughs> And he's in charge of the whole system. I don't know, what? So, did, when you were when you were in prison, did did music help you not become just completely embittered and? Yeah, that and my mother kept me reading. She said, "Well, now maybe at least you can find out what's wrong with you." <laughs> so. Uh, that was, that was one of the main reasons I was working in the library, so I could find out what was wrong with me. And she kept sending me reading lists. That and the band room, the music. Uh, I met this guitar player on the, on the, uh, on the athletic yard. He was sitting on the bleachers playing Embraceable You. And 
I was walking past, because there's guitar players all over the place, you know, and I, I was walking past, and I heard this guitar player, and I heard him, you know, I was coming toward, he, he's like here, and I'm coming toward him, and I hear, I, I hear him, and he's playing something. He's, he's really, his, his choice of, um, of, of, of changes and, and his rhythmic concepts and stuff. I'm going, damn, this is, that's pretty cool. When I got even with him, I, I couldn't, I couldn't keep walking. <laughs> I was just struck dumb. And I started to listen and I started humming. You know, and and he 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 shook his head. You know, like yeah, go ahead. You know, and I started singing, and he re and he he just grinned, man. He, he grinned from ear to ear, and he and I, boy, we really um, every day. That's what we were doing. You know, and. Uh, um, I think he, that grin of his, he had, he's a handsome guy, brilliant, brilliant guy, you know, nice man. And he, he, um, he encouraged me to sing because I had never thought of myself as a singer. I think about the life I live, a figure made of clay. And think about the things I lost, the things I gave away. And when I'm in a certain mood, I search the halls and look. One night I found these magic words in a magic book. Throw it away Throw it away Give your love Live your life Each and every day And keep your hand I'd always I was always interested in it and I'd always been doing it but I'd never thought of myself as I could sing with a player like this. We spent an hour saying, doing Embraceable You and he never gave me the same changes. Mm. He played that tune. He turned that tune inside out, you know. His name was Ralph Bravo and I don't know what happened to him. But uh I think he's the greatest guitar player I ever heard and I listen to guitar players, you know. I've never heard a guitar player like Ralph Bravo. Then I started listening. I, I started, I think I'd just gotten there. And I started walking around looking, listening and looking. And, you know, there was art. And uh, there's that band upstairs, you know, the band room in this old, where it used to be, execution chamber. This is at there. San Quentin? Is that yeah, right? Okay. Yeah, where they hung people. Uh, was with a band room. <laughs> so, um, in that building, they, they used to do executions. And so, I, um, 
I, I, I heard, I heard the, the music coming out of there and I made my way up there and, uh, discovered another world, you know. And was it, was it easy for you to gain acceptance or admittance to that world? Yeah. Um, the pianist, he and I, um, uh, he, I, I did same thing with him. There was a, there was a, I was in there, I walked in there one day and, um, I wasn't supposed to be in there and, and this pianist, uh, was playing Paul Dunbar. Is that his name? Anyway, um, he was playing something and I started singing along and he said, yeah, all right, you know, and it wasn't too long before I was on the warden show. You know, and uh, and Art would play on everything I sang, but he wouldn't talk to me much because he uh, he uh, it was it, it was a dangerous place, you know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He talks about Art's wife Lori has been on the show several times, and he uh, she has talked about it, and of course he talks about in the book Straight Life, mm-hmm. you know how important it. It was to figure out where your place was. That's right. It kind of in the hierarchy and yeah, and to maintain it, however, was necessary. I met Art. I met Art in nineteen forty. In the beginning of forty-seven. Yeah, early forty-seven, in Oakland, uh, the the Kenton band came through, and after the show, me and my partners. Um, went down to this guy's house where we cop weed, and we're there. We're 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 sitting there talking and and listening to music, you know. And um, we were listening to Bird. I never will forget that Cheryl was on. You know, when we were arguing about was that Bird or Sonny Stitt. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but um, <clears throat> we were arguing and. Art walks in with Frank Rossellino and I want to say Bob Cooper, but I don't know if it was Bob Cooper. But that's when I met Art, you know. And uh, I didn't see him anymore. Um, I think I saw him down there. I saw him there once again. And uh, then I didn't see him anymore because, you know, that band was all over the country, all over the world. And... um, then I didn't see him again until San Quentin. How many and, years were you in prison altogether? Uh, all told, uh, I, I did nine and a half on the installment plan. You know, I did two, two and a half, three, and 14 months. At both San Quentin and Folsom, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> Today I may not have a thing at all 
Except for just a dream or two But I've got lots of plans for tomorrow And all my tomorrows belong to you It may not seem like spring at all We're drifting and the laughs are few But I've got rain And was it difficult to get into UCLA afterward as an ex-convict? No, or no? no, I, uh, um... I was not, I did not, uh, I, I didn't get in as a, as a regular student. I got in as, uh, there was this program, uh, it was a, uh, extension program. And, uh, it belonged to the extension division. And, uh, they weren't, they, they, they were accepting people. But I had done some work in Sacramento with Cesar Chavez, with the farm workers, and, uh, gotten some gotten some press got some attention for that what kind of work did you do uh we created a, a daycare program for migrant children you know uh, children of the farm workers helping the ufw and then i had gone to work i had gone to, as a trainee to a thing called cccd california center for community development in, in del rey california and had done well there and um, that was some more stuff for the farm workers and then um, they had asked me to uh, this program at UCLA uh, had asked me to, if I would be if I'd like to come to UCLA mm. and so um, yeah I did and uh, at the end of the I think it was a 10-week program or something. They asked me to stay on, you know. And my wife was working. My Diane was working there. She was a secretary. She was an intern secretary. Mm. And uh, it was 44 years ago this past January 2nd. That's amazing. It's it's incredible that you've the the kind of post prison recovery life you've lived, which is longer than all of the life that I've lived by a few years. <laughs> uh, it's I mean it's incredible to hear just how much you've had you've had almost three or four distinct lives. I mean there's it seems like there's been many facets of the Ed Reed story, you know, from from the beginning. Can you talk about so you you did this uh, training toward helping. Uh, nonprofits kind of get their act together, mm-hmm. but then you also spent many years as a counselor for people who had gone through the same experiences. Well, that you before did. before that, though, um, while I was at UCLA, I was still shooting junk. No kidding. Yeah, and um, uh, I went to Stockton. I had I was uh, monitoring a program in Stockton, San Joaquin County, and. They asked me if I would come and help them uh, develop some treatment programs. So I went there as a consultant to the medical administrator. (laughs) This is so sick. But 
And we put together a series of programs in every town in the county. And then they caught me shooting dope. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, I went to my first drug program. Mm. And that's when the struggle began. Um, That's when the struggle really began around the drug. Because, see, the the first thing when they said we're gonna shoot, we're gonna shoot heroin down at uh, when Art was right, you know, in that in that at that dealer's house. I said, that's stupid, man. I, cause I read everything. I don't know why. I just read everything. Somehow I knew about bloodborne disease and, and I thought, I'm not going to take no needle out of Scabby Willie's arm and put it in my arm. And right. said, if you ain't going to shoot dope, split, man. Okay, man. And so there I go. And that, that was Labor Day 1947. So. And when was your first drug treatment program? My first drug pro- treatment program was um, October, October 1969. Wow. 19, no, 1970. October 1970. So 23 years, that's a long, yeah. that's a long time yeah. to be involved with. Yeah, well, I got out of prison in 66. And I went to my first treatment program in 66. There were 25 treatment programs, and I didn't get it. I couldn't get it. I just I just really got clear, oh, maybe six months ago that I don't listen well. I'm not good at listening. <laughs> I have to learn. You said you figured learn. that out six months ago? <laughs> better, better late than never, I guess, as, as things go. Yeah, Diane's talking to me, and I'm doing something else, you know. I ain't got time, you know. You just you talking, okay? Go ahead, keep talking, but I'm busy. And I, you know, so now when she talks, I stop and turn around and give her my complete and undivided attention. She deserves. She she's earned that. That's that that belongs to her, you know. I'm not much to look at, nothing to see Just glad I'm living and happy to be I got a woman crazy for me She's funny that way I can't save a dollar, ain't worth a cent She'd never holler, she'd live in a tent I've got a woman crazy for me She's funny that way Though she'd love to After that program, there's all these programs And I, 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 I enrolled in school at Sac State no, I went to school at Irvine. That didn't work because um, I, I, you know, I, I, the teachers are talking and I'm going, are they crazy? You know, and, and that was the other thing. I was taking criminology. You know, mm-hmm. I, was, I was I was really wanting to fight with the justice system. And um, 
they couldn't hear nothing. They couldn't hear a word. You know, they're talking this stuff, and I'm saying, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? I just came to, you know, I, I know about that system. Not only have I read about it, I've been in it, and I've been questioning it, you know? They told me to shut up, and I wouldn't shut up, so they locked me back up the last time. You know, that 14-month thing, he, he locked me up. And then after that, I get back out on parole, and the same guy that locked me up, uh, I was I was taking another class, and uh, somebody told, oh, yeah, uh, uh, there was this little old lady in the class, and she uh, said, this man is really talking awful about our justice system and so and so and so and so and so forth so she was the mother-in-law i mean the uh, yeah the mother-in-law of the director of corrections so they told me to shut up i said i ain't gonna shut up and the teacher said what kind of thing is this that he's got to shut up so they sent this parole officer that had sent me back to the class too to show the 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 pure side right. of corrections. <laughs> well, um, he came out not looking so good. So he said, "I want to come back by myself because that guy he's just he you know he he's he, his whole thing is a con game and he you know he." I out-talked him, I guess that's what he's saying. Anyway, they um, he came back by himself and brought my jack, brought my file. They ran him off. They ran him off. The little old lady goes back to her to, back to her son-in-law and tells him how awful those kids were, <laughs> and told him about and told him the whole thing. They fired that fool. They fired him. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> little, little justice. <laughs> <laughs> so then, um, I'm doing this stuff, and I get caught, and, and um, I decided that, oh, yeah, part of that, that county program building uh, created the second methadone maintenance program in the state. I was the first person licensed to drive uh, on uh, under the influence of methadone in California. No so, yeah, <laughs> I wrote the protocol for the program. So I'm one of the first people in in my in my own program. I'm I'm <laughs> nobody knows what to do but me, <laughs> and. And I've been I've been uh, apprehended, <laughs> you know. So I leave the program. I, I I'm I'm one of the first clients in my own program. They fire me because I, uh, you know after all I'm <laughs> you know I, sure. I, and I had been I had been the hero in the newspapers, you know. I had been on on stage debating with all kinds of uh, supposed uh, upright, upstanding people, you know, and I had won those debates. I had, I was a shining star, and then they catch me shooting dope, right? 
<laughs> so then I get fired and I'm brokenhearted, you know, because the drug, I never felt like the drug was something anybody ought to be doing, but I couldn't stop. And uh, I had an affair with somebody and Diane divorced me. I lost everything. So I decided, well, I'll just kill myself. Wow. <laughs> I'll just kill myself. So I wrote a check and I bought as much, I, I think I, I wrote, I bought $400 worth of, worth of heroin. And I'm going over to this dope dealer's house that I hate. <laughs> I'm going to get him, I'm going to die at his house and get him in trouble. <laughs> well, I'm still detoxing from methadone. I got, you know, I got some time. It's been quite a while since I'd had any methadone, so I figured it'll be, I can kill myself and it'll be cool. Well, I don't want them watching what I'm doing. I don't want them to see that I'm fixing it, that I'm going to die on them. So I give them some of the dope, him and his, him and his partner. She falls down and then he falls down. I take mine and I can't feel it. I take some more. I don't feel it. Well, one of the things that can happen when you take that much of the drug, when you start to that those kinds, you know, I'm taking I'm I'm taking a lot. What would have all in the past without the methadone, it would have knocked me down. I thought I'm fixing to have a stroke. And it probably ain't going to kill me. It's just going to make, it's going to cripple me. Right. <laughs> just be paralyzed. So, yeah. I spent the next 14 hours reviving them. So then, and I was pissed. <laughs> I was really mad, you know. So I thought, I, you can't even kill yourself. And then I went to program after program after program. At the end of that time, um, I tried to go back to school, couldn't do it. I tried to do, um, I think I went to work in a rubber plant. Oh, man, my heart was just broken. I'm shooting dope. I, I'm trying to stop, and I can't stop. And I'm, you know, in and out, in and out, doing this stuff. I, I didn't go to jail anymore, but, um, um, oh, yeah, the court in that in that county, because I had been such a, a benefit to the county, sent me to drug program rather than jail mm. for forging, you know, writing that not insufficient funds check. <laughs> <laughs> so then I'm, I'm going, I'm dragging myself through the mud. Um, I did that from 1971 through 1986. Who had the girls turning handsprings Crazy to love him, claimed he Who could so misunderstand things You're looking at me 
who was so sure of his conquest. Sure as a human could be Who wound up losing the contest You're looking at me You're looking at me I left the last program I got mad at him Because I had been a star in the program I, I was running everything and they told me, and, and, and I got mad at them because um, I just didn't, you know, it was just dumb stuff. And I started uh, shooting dope in the program, and they wouldn't catch me. So I called them up and told them how stupid they were <laughs> for not catching me. And, and I got out on the sidewalk. This is the 25th program. I get out on the sidewalk and I look at the cuff of my pants and there's blood. And I started crying. I started crying. And I went, that was January of 86. I went until July. But I got into recovery, you know. And uh, I've been in recovery ever since. And then... um Diane and I got, oh yeah, she divorced me, and we got remarried in eighty in eighty nine, and uh, it's been fantastic ever since. Uh, I started in eighty nine. I started working in adolescent treatment. I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't think I wanted to do that again. And they gave me one afternoon. The director of the program she came up to me and handed me these three sheets of scribbled paper that were all wrinkled and everything, and said, I think we'd like you to do the Saturday lecture series for parents. And this is adolescent treatments, you know, so upscale program, too. And I said, okay, let me take a look at that. And from those three scribbled pages, I've now got a ten-part lecture series. Cause don't nobody need no old man Don't nobody call his name Nobody even whispers What a doggone shame Cross your cold gray brow Ain't no use of weeping Too late very beginning of this interview i started mentioning the repertoire and how it's very difficult to listen to some of these these songs without thinking that there's a lot 
there's a lot of you in those lyrics, even though other yeah. people wrote the lyrics. I mean, I think particularly, uh, you know, Old Country is, um, which is a song that a lot of people play as kind of an up-tempo burner, but the, mm-hmm. the lyrics are really very melancholy and very much someone looking at a life that didn't pan out. Yeah. And it seems yeah. like, uh, you know, it's almost like a there but for the grace of, <laughs> of God go you story in, <laughs> in some right. ways, you know? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the repertoire and about oh, finding yeah. this song? Well, you know, in particular for this record, the last one, Born to be Blue, um, that's what it's about, you know, I believe. Uh, and, and I just heard the other day that Martin Luther King said everybody's everybody has the blues you got to have if you keep breathing you got to have them and somebody else said pain in life is mandatory suffering is optional you know so mm. uh i i've been saying you know that you're going to have the blues and 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 that's part of that's the other side of the good stuff so if you want some good stuff, you're going to have to have some some of the other stuff, too. So uh, this is all about acknowledging that, you know, and not not being depressed about it, but saying thank you. Thank you. And throw it away. Keep your, keep your hand wide open, you know. <laughs> Let the sun shine, yeah. it, as, as Abby Lincoln put it. And, uh, and, and so that's... That's mainly what it's about. It's interesting because you said uh, you said earlier on in the interview regarding the blues, uh, kind of as a genre, mm-hmm. that a lot of the music is based on on blame, and it sounds like you know, kind of like feeling like a victim. Yeah. Um, and even though there is, I would say, blues throughout "Born to Be Blue." I mean, it's even called "Born mm-hmm. to Be Blue" for God's sake. Uh, it's very different in tone from that kind of blaming philosophy. It's yeah. it's more of like what you just said, acknowledging but but passing through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that 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 tune, uh, "Inside a Silent Tear," Blossom Deary's tune, written with Mariah Blackwolf, who whom I've gotten to be friends with. Oh no, and, and and she, I'm the only guy that's ever recorded this tune. Inside. A silent tear I have a silent dream That sometimes sails across The patterns of my mind For silence followed me And dreams just disappear And then I find myself Inside a silent tear You know, so... And it's the story of my of, of all of that craziness. Inside a silent tear, I have a silent dream that sometimes sails across the patterns of my of my mind. For, and, and, and it says, "For silence followed me, and dreams just disappear." 
And then I find myself inside of silence. Then he says, sometimes I laugh too much to hide the emptiness, to lose the loneliness. I'm not the laughing kind, and I can't say anything I really want to say. Sometimes I try so hard I stumble on the way. Whoa, that was all about it. I couldn't say that I feel inferior. I feel worthless. I feel useless. I don't know what to do. You know, I I I, I never could tell anybody that. Mm-hmm. And that's about being socially awkward. I'm always finding love When it's not meant to be What is reality And can it be defined When you're a fool like me it's really never clear so you have silent dreams inside a silent Sometimes I laugh too much To hide the emptiness To lose the loneliness I'm not the laughing kind I can't say I try so hard I stumble on the way I'm always finding love When it's not meant to be What is reality and can it be defined when you're a fool like me it's never Silent dreams inside a silent tear inside a silent Yeah, it's it's so fascinating because when I when I hear you sing, 
you know, a lot of times I interview singers who are even younger than I am, you know, in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly something at that time that you can bring to music also. Right. But there's something, you know, when you're in your early 80s and you've lived the life that you've lived, there's, a, I think, a quality to your interpretation of these lyrics that cannot be gained in any other way than but living a life. I think I think that's probably true because um, you you you've got to know the story you're talking about, you know. Well, uh, I I've been teaching singers, and one of the things I say is, "Who's saying this stuff, and why?" You know, and 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 what's the ambiance, and where where's, where where are they inside or outside? Are they looking at what if you look out the window, what do you see? And how do you become that person seeing that stuff and telling that story? That's what you got to do. Mm. That's what that's what these songs are all about for me. You know. Being in that moment. And every time you sing it, it's not that moment that you started with, it's another moment because there are myriad moments. You can never be all of the moments, but each one is a different one. And you got to be appreciative of those moments. And very often, you know, somebody, I think Deepak Chopra said, live in the moment and cherish the moment. So the, the singer needs to live in the moment and cherish the moment. It ain't about how you sang it yesterday. It's about what you, what, what's going on in your life today that makes you want to sing this song now. You know, and how can you bring that to this? Um, it's amazing. So it's a, but you know, all of that comes out of that lecture series because I'm starting to understand. You know, what you live, you learn. What you learn, you practice. What you practice, you become. <laughs> what you become has consequences so watch out <laughs> <laughs> well it's a it's an absolutely amazing story and i i feel very honored to have had a chance to to listen to it in person my guest is ed reed the most recent record is born to be blue and it's been such a pleasure to talk to you thank you very much oh thank you thank you jason i'm happy <laughs> Drink of a life that was pure and true. I drink of a job only I could do. One cat beside me, we'd be a team. Man, that was a dream. I dreamed of this music I had to play. I dreamed when I played, I would play my way. Two fascinating children, two lead two. Man, that was a dream. All through life, I'd be true. Fortune would come my way. Struggling, getting by, trying to live a life. Mean exactly what I say. I dreamed I had fame and a life sublime. I dreamed I made prints on the sands of time. Smack dab in the spotlight, bathe in its beam. Man, that was a dream.
That's music from Ed Reed and his CD, Born to be Blue. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session. You'll find it at thejazzsession.com. The show is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Thanks so much for listening. Please become a member if you like what you heard. It's cheap, it's fast, and it keeps the show going. And then, if you would, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.